The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of how the world really works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome you to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reveals how the world really works. Great to be together with you again, and thank you for being there while I'm here. And a particular thank you to those of you who continue helping promote the show, inviting other people to listen, sending links by email to friends, anybody anybody who is like-minded enough to derive perhaps the same benefits that you do. At least, I hope you do. Thanks a lot. Much appreciated. As we move into today's topic, which is why the world hates the Jews. And uh, I should really um, also subtitle it part one, because there are a number of different reasons Uh, Some of them interface with one another, others seemingly contradict one another, but all will be made clear eventually. To start off with, however, let us just acknowledge the proposition that the world does hate the Jews. Everybody? Of course not. Uh, We're going through this amazing period of history where Christians are the most stalwart, reliable, and urgently needed friends that Jews have had in a very long period of time. And because America is primarily a Christian country, not a country of a Christian government, but a country that is rooted on Judeo-Christian biblical principles, and a country with the highest proportion of Bible believers of anywhere else other than Israel, uh, it is a country that has provided a uh, more tranquil, more prosperous, more stable home for Jews than anywhere else in the last 2,000 years. And that's not in spite of America being a Christian country. It is precisely because of that. And so uh, here we are at a blessed moment in history, as a a Jew myself, uh, a blessed moment in a blessed space surrounded by blessed friends. It's wonderful. But uh, let's also acknowledge that you know that more than any other people, there has been hatred of Jews. Uh, You cannot suggest for a moment that Sri Lankans have experienced the same level of hatred from as wide an array of haters over as long a period of history. Um, Hindu hatred, while I don't doubt for a moment that there are Muslims in the Punjab who hate Hindus, but 
to say that Hindu hatred is an ongoing feature of the world for thousands of years, that's you know, ridiculous. It's simply not true. Uh, Jews have enjoyed, shall I use that word in quotation marks, uh, a really unique position of having been the focus of hatred over the longest period of time from as wide a range of people in as many different cultures and countries, people who've never met a Jew in their lives speak with vitriol about the Jews. In, in times where Jews were virtually unknown, in places where they were virtually unknown, this uh, scourge of anti-Semitism reliably uh, shows its head rising again, falling, subsiding, coming back. And uh, it's, it's just, it's a phenomenon. It's a very real phenomenon. Now, it's also very important not to regard all anti-Semitism as exactly the same, because it isn't. We're going to look at several examples, mo mainly really just one with sort of glimpses at another one or two. But um, uh, when I come back to the topic and we'll do part two, we'll continue. But right now, my hope is that in today's show, I'm going to give you enough material on why the world hates the Jews to provide at least some enlightenment on, on this perplexing problem. Now, uh, let's also stipulate that uh, Jews were put into the world not to be the chosen people for special privilege, you know, not to, uh, not to enjoy anything unique or different, but Jews were put into the world in order to help change it, in order to help bring about God's kingdom on earth, basically a messianic vision of the future, um, a future in which things go wonderfully well eventually rather than horribly badly. And it is, uh, it's perfectly clear that there is a, a struggle between two incompatible visions for the future. One of them is a very seductive and tempting one, and that is the vision for the future that says everything is doomed in the future. And you might say, well, why is that seductive and tempting? I'll explain it. But um, it's a vision that says there's, it's going to be hopeless. The end is doomed. Either the sun is going to be extinguished or we're going to be rammed by a huge out-of-control meteorite that strikes the earth and destroys it. Or we're going to have nuclear winter, which used to be popular a couple of decades ago. Or we're going to have global warming. Or we're how about acid rain? Do you remember that one? Acid rain. The, the world is going to be destroyed because all the rain falling uh, is going to become acidic and eventually erode and destroy everything on Earth. Uh, and so it is. One vision after another of hopelessness and doom and misery all ending in utter oblivion. That is one view of the future. And it is seductive for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that um, it kind of means that nothing much matters. It, it allows a, a hedonistic worldview. It allows a nihilistic worldview. As a matter of fact, it compels such a worldview, which is nothing matters much anyway because it's all going to end in hopelessness. And uh, 
And that's kind of appealing because it takes away individual responsibility. It takes away any duty one might feel towards the future, any obligation to improve things, because it's all hopeless. We're all going to be destroyed by something far bigger than ourselves anyways. And this is, um, it, it's a very common perception. It's a very common picture of the future. Uh, there's another one. And the other one says that um, we can't tell you the details. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out. But we do know that uh, God is in charge and that the world is not going to hell in a handbasket and that ultimately there is going to be some grand messianic redemption um, in which God's kingdom comes to be on earth and everybody uh, lives forever and everything is wonderful and we all, uh, again, without going into details, there are different images, but bottom line is in ways beyond our imagining, the end is going to be good and positive and sunny and bright rather than gloomy and hopeless and destructive. These are the two visions for the future, and they are incompatible. And in living your life, you kind of have to decide which one you live by. There are really many reasons why you don't have the option of just opting out, although many people try to do just that. Basically, you kind of have to decide which it's going to be. Now, Jews uh, had imparted to them at Mount Sinai the mission of bringing the second vision to the world, the vision that uh, everything is worth doing because there is an eternity, there is a forever, there is a future of goodness and hope. And, um, and that message was, if you like, a messianic message that the Jews had to convey. And eventually, uh, they were joined in this mission by Christians. And today, the biblical vision of a messianic good future um, is essentially carried by Jews and Christians. However, what happened is that there were many, many Jews who, over the centuries, have abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And instead of abandoning the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and just becoming utterly indifferent, it turns out that for, for strange reasons, Jews may abandon God. They may turn their back on the Torah, but they do not abandon the messianic mission. And so when there is no longer a biblical vision for the future, but you're still clinging to the mission of selling the world on a future, well, you go the other way, and you sell the world on a secular future. And so you have people who, um, who are as problematic to me as they would be to, uh, to uh, any of my pastor friends. Uh, we have people who are undoubtedly of Jewish ancestry, but who have long since abandoned the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and have long since turned their back on the Torah. And uh, who are these people? Well, there's, there's tens of thousands of them. There's millions of them. Uh, it's, and it's a huge problem. It probably constitutes, if not half, close to half of the 1.2% of Americans who identify as Jewish. Um, who am I talking about? You know, let me just throw out a, a few names to you that um, I'm sure you can add to it. And I know that if I, if I gave myself uh, 90 seconds to think about it, I would come up literally with uh, 
a hundred names. As fast as my hand could write, I would be writing down names. But, you know, Bernie Sanders springs to mind, right? Uh, Paul Krugman, the uh, left-wing economics writer for the New York Times. Um, Herbert Marcuse. Herbert Marcuse lived in Germany pre-World War II Germany. He was a... Um, uh, well, his his goal was to combine Karl Marx. Oh, yeah, how could I have forgotten him? Karl Marx, not strictly speaking a Jew, but a, a grandson of a rabbi. So he obviously was of Jewish ancestry. Herbert Marcuse uh, wanted to combine Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud. Uncle Sigmund, yes, indeed, another Jew. And... Again, another Jew who had long ago rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and was really somewhat dedicated to uh, coming up and, and converting the world to a materialistic view of people. And in fact, to this day, Freudian psychiatry is very wrong in the sense that it is totally based on, on the idea of human beings materialistic, the, uh, the preponderance of medication and the tendency to turn immediately to medication in psychiatry uh, is very much a gift of Uncle Sigmund. But back to Herbert Marcuse, uh, he uh, became very influential in what was known as the Frankfurt School, moved to the United States, taught at prestigious East Coast universities, and in many ways can legitimately be called the father of the student radicalism of the 1960s. Um, the uh, student riots in 68, both in the United States, also in France, owe a lot to Herbert Marcuse. How about Saul Alinsky, um, Hillary Rodham Clinton's hero um, and the hero of many others on the left, Saul Alinsky, another person I am sorry to have to tell you is of Jewish ancestry. How about George Soros? All right, there's a problem one. Um, Chuck Schumer, right? Been in the United States Senate for most of his life. I mean... That, that's, he's never lived in the real world. He is busy doing his best to bring about a materialistic messianic future to America. Uh, Gerald Nadler in the Congress, New York, uh, another person done very little, very little other than working in politics all his life. Um, Congressman Adam Schiff in California, again, I think he's in his 10th session is his 10th um, elect his 10th uh, term in congress that is what would um anthony weiner and so it goes look i can uh, as you could i could literally come up with many 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 uh, one by the way who is not uh, who is a, a very problematic guy is a guy called morris dees of the southern poverty law center uh, the left venerates the splc it's uh, essentially it's an anti-christian organization and uh, a left-wing front. Morris Dees uh, sounds Jewish, isn't actually, but uh, neither here nor there. Bottom line, uh, there is a whole area of anti-Semitism uh, that is focused on these people and their Jewish ancestry. I don't think it's right because uh, although they are of Jewish ancestry, the notion that Jewish values impel them in any way whatsoever could hardly be more false. That's simply not the case. Uh, it is their utter rejection of Jewish values that makes them uh, who they are and makes them what they are and impels them to do the reprehensible things they do and the things they stand for. But nonetheless, 
there is certainly one area of anti-Semitism uh, where people are uh, people look around and say, you know, there's an awful lot of individuals in America whose influence has been negative on the country who are of Jewish ancestry, and uh, and I have no alternative but to nod my head sadly and say, you're right. Uh, to call them people uh, of Jewish commitment or Jewish values, that would simply not be true. Uh, but nonetheless, I can't expect everybody to parse the distinctions and uh, to, to focus on the nuances, uh, but at least I would like you to understand that uh, that you've got different kinds of Jews. You've got Jews who are indifferent to religion, but not many. The overwhelming majority are hostile to traditional values, and uh, a minority of perhaps 25% uh, of Jews in America who are uh, committed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to biblical values. So uh, that is just a little bit of the background, and it, 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 it includes this one uh, factor of anti-Semitism, which is not uncommon. So that is, um, uh, that is a start. But we'll go on to another area of anti-Semitism, and we will take a look at just what it is that is going on there uh, in just a moment. I again urge you to uh, visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, take a look, by the way, at uh, a, uh, an audio program called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. If you've not heard this, I strongly recommend it, because if you want to get a full understanding of the intensity of the struggle and the timelessness of the struggle between the two views of humanity's future, uh, then you won't get a more detailed Bible-based teaching on that than the audio program Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. That is at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, I should also mention that uh, I wrote a little bit about this topic in a recent Thought Tools and I'm basing the podcast, although I'm going into much greater depth and much greater breadth now today in this show than I did in the Thought Tools. But if you went to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and you looked up a recent Thought Tool called Why the World Hates the Jews, uh, you'll find it interesting, and you will also find the comments that have come in uh, that are printed after after the thought tool, you'll find them very interesting indeed, as I did. And I answered, uh, I think so far I've answered the majority of those comments. If I haven't, I will get to it soon. But uh, that would be rabbidaniellappin.com, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Revealing how the world really works 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to my world. Won't you come on in? Yes, indeed. Welcome to my world. That's the world of your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, where I reveal how the world really works. And the key thing to remember is that Life makes more sense when you know how the world really works. Uh, You know, your journey across an ocean or a big lake is easier if you have a chart and you know where the wind is coming from and you know what the currents are doing. Uh, If you've got to make your way across a desert or through a forest, having a compass, having an idea of your destination, having an idea of your starting point, Uh, This is all very helpful indeed, and knowing how the world really works is uh, is akin to all of those things as well. And one of the ways that the world really works in is that very often um, identifications that last are provided by one's enemies. And so, for instance, um, although I don't like the terminology – I am often referred to as an Orthodox Jew, and I can't deny it uh, because the word Orthodox, when applied to Jew, uh, typically means somebody who takes the uh, rules and regulations and rituals and restrictions of the five books of Moses of the Torah seriously, uh, somebody who uh, is who regards the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his boss. Now, I mean, I realize that um, in today's age, in postmodern America, particularly in any city uh, which has a modern American university campus, I know that that remark uh, irredeemably labels me as hopelessly primitive and tribalistic, and uh, completely irrelevant to uh, the the popular debate, so much so that uh, I occasionally get told from time to time, most recently by a journalist from a Boston newspaper, uh, that since I'm a rabbi, I should keep quiet and speak in synagogue about religious matters. I should not have anything to say about politics at all, because in case I didn't know, this country has a rule of separation of church and state, which she interpreted to mean that I should have no say at all. Well, it doesn't mean that anyone has to listen to me, but uh, like anybody else, uh, I can say pretty much whatever I like, although uh, that list of prohibited statements keeps on growing all the time under the heading of politically incorrect. But but, uh, interestingly, the term orthodox was never used or coined as as a phrase by people who are, if you like, orthodox. As a matter of fact, um, as the uh, reform Jewish movement began to grow and become uh, more uh, powerful uh, in the middle of the 18th century, that's right, it was the 1700s when reform Judaism began. And uh, prior to that time, there was really only Judaism, and it was, it was normative, religious, uh, Torah-observant Judaism. That's what it was. And along came Reform Judaism, and uh, they also, uh, towards the end of the 18th century, uh, there was also interesting correlations between Reform Jewish leadership 
and a group of people known as the Illuminati. Now, <clears throat> if you say the word Illuminati in, in polite society, people, <clears throat> people roll their eyeballs and, uh, and assume you're some kind of uh, escapee from a not particularly selective lunatic asylum. Uh, but in reality, there, uh, there is something to that. And uh, in, 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 a, in a nutshell, what, it, what it's about and the common cause made with reform Judaism was over this entire question of whether society is going to follow the avenue uh, of the essentially foundational principles of Western civilization found in Judeo-Christian tradition or whether it was going to go off in another direction. Uh, key issues, of course, was whether the uh, most fundamental element of society <coughs> is, um, is the family or the individual. Uh, it uh, argued over the role of centralized government and internationalism or globalism. Uh, it, uh, it argued over, obviously, the role of religion. It argued over whether the uh, economic system was going to allow private ownership and the freedom that individual uh, wealth provides or it was going to be a system of centralized control. And, and I know we sort of tend to label that alternative, you know, communism or socialism or progressivism. There are all kinds of terms we've come up with always describing exactly the same thing. But uh, I, I do want you to know that uh, communism as a way of thinking did not come up for the first time. Um, you know, in the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. No, it didn't even come up for the first time in the French Revolution, which obviously pushed that side of things, pushed that approach. Uh, no, it didn't come there either. How about Plato? Uh, did it come from Plato? Well, you know, Plato obviously writes of it and, uh, and speaks favorably of it. But again, it goes back long before that. And uh, the, the, the full details of it I provide in an audio program at my website called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. But uh, for now, enough just to say that uh, the Reform Judaism had to come up with a term for the people they now no longer like. In other words, you're breaking away uh, for uh, since time immemorial there has been this uh, thing called Judaism, and now you are redefining it, and you are stripping away the authority of uh, Scripture. So if you are right, and you're doing the natural progressive things that modern people of the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s want to do, then there must be some regressive term for the primitives who still adhere to the tradition. And so they came up with a pejorative term, the orthodox, meaning uh, very circumscribed, very lacking in imagination, uh, doctrinal, and in other words, with all the negative connotations that the word orthodox can have. And uh, somehow or another, for reasons I don't fully understand, that is the name that stuck. <laughs> so uh, the, the people who are... Uh, who, who could not be more removed. They're literally at the other end of the religio-philosophical spectrum from uh, normative Judaism are the ones who gave the name Orthodox Judaism. Well, uh, how about capitalism? Uh, it was meant to be a pejorative term. 
I think it was probably originated by Marx, in, uh, who, who was writing about it 1840, 1850, 1860, those 20 years. And, uh, and the, the word translated um, out of German into capitalist. You know, and he wrote Das Kapital and so on. Um, and I think that's probably where the, the word first began to, um, to show up. I'm told that the English uh, writer William Makepeace Thackeray uh, used the term uh, capitalist. He's the guy who wrote Vanity Fair, uh, a book that sort of described English society. I've not been able to find it. I, I didn't do an extensive search. But in any event, if he did use it, I'm quite sure he, he took it from some of the writings of Karl Marx that, was already, uh, that were already circulating. That's, that's my very strongly held view. And so uh, the, the term capitalist, yeah, <laughs> came from somebody who despised it, and it was meant as a pejorative. And the truth is that uh, for many people, particularly in the United States of America and Canada today, uh, the term capitalist is a pejorative. They don't see it as somebody proudly identifying himself, you know, the same way as somebody says, I'm an environmentalist. Well, I'm a capitalist. No, that's not the way it's used. Um, it's, it's used to, to try and slur people. And in fact, a uh, California college at which I spoke or was scheduled to speak, actually I did speak, uh, in an attempt to generate protests, labeled me, among other things, a capitalist, and they didn't mean it complimentarily. So uh, the same thing happened, of course, uh, with the term robber barons. Now, anything with the word robber in it obviously is, is meant pejoratively, but um, where, did, you know, where did that come from? Again, um, not during the 1800s when the, the great industrialists reshaped America through oil through the railroads, through steel, through mining. Uh, the, these were people who really improved. Now, look, I'm not saying they were saints, right? Like all of us. Um, no, no, they weren't saints. But I don't think that they were any, uh, in most cases, any worse in terms of a human makeup and character than, uh, than most of us. And the only difference was that uh, having the, the power and the influence that they did possess uh, they were, and also being very much at the focus of public attention. Anyways, when do they get called the robber barons? Not while they're changing life for America. All of a sudden, people can travel on railroads. All of a sudden, the Standard Oil Company made it possible for people to have light in their homes. Um, up till then, it had been uh, whale oil, and, and that was being uh, becoming expensive and limited. Uh, one thing after another, the quality of life improved. So. In those days, you know, mothers would tell their children, if you work hard, you know, you can do what Mr. Jacob Astor did in, in trade and commerce. And if, if you work hard, you, you can achieve great success. And she'd point to these men. But in eight, in, in, um, it wasn't until actually, uh, I think, 1924, if I remember correctly, that, again, a, a Jewish fellow uh, or should I, again, I suppose I should say of Jewish ancestry, because he certainly didn't manifest any form of commitment to Jewish thought, values, or philosophy. In fact, he was the other direction, right? Progressive, socialist, communist, whatever, whatever you want to call him. These are the two directions, the two main incompatible directions in which society can move. 
either, and you know, we, we conveniently speak of toward the left or the right, but again, not a very uh, strong definition. But when you say left and right, people pretty much have a sense of what you mean. Uh, interestingly enough, I've, I, I noticed that uh, if you check into the mainstream media, newspapers particularly, the term um, extreme or extremist is associated with right-wing uh, about 500 times more often than it is with left-wing. You know, you almost never see anyone described as a left-wing extremist. Right? What would you call Nancy Pelosi? Uh, you know, what would you call Chuck Schumer if, if not left-wing extremists? Um, Bernie Sanders, I think he's comical. I'm not sure you'd call him anything. But, uh, but yes, of course there's left-wing extremism, but it's regarded as a virtue. So it's n the word extremist pejorative never used in the context of left-wing, because left-wing almost invariably uh, is taken by the culture to mean virtuous, caring, compassionate, things matter to you, as opposed to the selfish people on the right who are not only selfish but racists to boot, and you get the picture. That is uh, how the culture works. So uh, Robert Barnes, yeah, Matthew Josephson, a, uh, a Jewish uh, historian and writer, uh, retroactively names these people the robber barons. Well, there's nothing nice about robber barons, is there? By the time you've labeled people in that fashion, and it really caught on and it really stuck uh, to the point today where uh, robber barons in America means the great industrialists of the, of the 19th century. So uh, you know, we're, we're stuck with it. That's, that's the term, and, uh, and that's what people use. Now, in, in a very similar way to uh, how uh, those who were planning to supplant traditional Bible-based Juda Judaism uh, with the Judaism that is now, even then, actually, I mean, it's, it's remarkably close still to the doctrines of the Democratic Party in its current far-left manifestation, um, that, that tendency of um, denigrating what you are abandoning, right? So Reform Judaism was departing and abandoning the traditional form of Judaism, and so their parting gift was to name or label in a pejorative way uh, normative Judaism as orthodox Judaism. Uh, in a very similar way, um, Karl Marx is, um, is saying, look, uh, let's suppress this incredibly exciting movement of freedom that has been spreading through the world. Um, 1776, you've got uh, the United States of America. Um, uh, soon after that, you've got the French Revolution, misunderstood as it was and as it turned out to be a very repressive and, uh, and negative revolution. But nonetheless, a lot of speaking about freedom and... Uh, and you've got Adam Smith writing the, um, the nature of wealth and poverty in nations at that period. Uh, and again, it's, it, was, it was a recognition that a, a, a free market capitalism allowing people to own things, uh, to have money, was one of the great assurances of freedom. This is why, of course, any government that is moving leftwards, as is the United States government, or at least certainly as it was until November the 8th, 2016, and maybe it still is, but perhaps a little less rapidly than it had been under uh, President Obama and before him, President Bush, 
Um, as the country had been drifting uh, so significantly towards the left, it's not an accident that at the same time the capacity of ordinary people to make money and keep the money they've made was diminished. In other words, the goal all along, in spite of noble-sounding rhetoric about getting people off the welfare rolls, the goal is uh, essentially to make people dependent on government until you reach the uh, communist ideal of the government taking everything that people make and supplying everything that people need. That is the, that is the ultimate dream, which is why I think most politicians um, are reluctant to ever go on record as saying, I absolutely immovably commit myself that income tax will never go higher than X percent. Uh, they're not willing to do that because politicians want the freedom to always be able to tax. This is one of the reasons that we find ourselves moving in that direction. And so in, in the same way that uh, in its, as a sort of parting gift, as it was saying farewell to how things used to be, uh, Reform Judaism called the, the, uh, the, the, the mainstream orthodox, and so it was uh, Karl Marx used the word capitalist, meaning um, to, uh, to slur and, uh, and, and demean those people who believed that individuals, not the government, should be um, the chief economic deciders in a society. And um, at the same time, I, again, I stress, uh, you know, I'm perfectly aware that, um, that the Englishman Thackeray used the term once. Um, also, Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, uh, in one of his writings, used it. But it's all the period of about 1850, roughly there, that Karl Marx started using it. People don't always realize just how widely known Karl Marx became. You know, if you wonder why Frederick Engels supported him and uh, allowed him to sponge off him all those years, one of the reasons was that Karl Marx was a magnet for publicity, and he... Uh, he somehow uh, managed to get a lot of people to pay attention. So I have no doubt myself that he originated the term and uh, um, knowledgeable and educated people uh, very quickly became aware of it, may not necessarily have been aware of how it was intended to become a slur of a free market economy, capitalist, but that's exactly what happened, of course. And uh, remember... This is a discussion on why the world hates the Jews, and you can see that we are homing in on this. But uh, the, the point we're going to come to next is the idea that when we see people doing reprehensible activities, then we think of them as reprehensible people. So, uh, uh, you know, if we, if, we, if we know somebody who is uh, nowadays, by the way, I actually even know instances where executives of tobacco companies, I'm going back uh, now 10 or 15 years, maybe 20 years even, where executives of tobacco companies found themselves socially ostracized. People who used to count on being invited to the best Upper East Side of New York dinners and cocktail parties suddenly found themselves not invited. And this had an awful lot to do with uh, their surrender on, uh, on tobacco and everything that happened over there. But 
Uh, the idea is that once it was decided that smoking was evil, then the people who produce tobacco are by definition evil. If you believe that pornography is evil, then you don't go about inviting notorious pornographers to your dinner parties. You know, you don't. You, you, you tend to shun people who engage in behavior that you consider to be reprehensible behavior. And you can see what's happened. As soon as two things were achieved, number one, the Jew was identified with free market commerce, and number two, free market commerce was uh, villainized and demonized and uh, turned into a, uh, an immoral and evil activity, well then, by extension, obviously the people who practice it and who engage in it are dreadful people as well. And that's exactly how the system works. I'll give you a bit more insight as we uh, move along into the next uh, segment. For now, I want to remind you that the website is youneedarabbi.com. And uh, on, the store, uh, on the store page of the, of the site at youneedarabbi.com, you'll see an audio program called uh, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And uh, you will then be able to get a bit of a sense of um, the, what the tower means, the whole idea of centralized control, the insignificance of people, uh, why it is that uh, atheism or rejection of the God of the Bible always goes hand in hand with communism. You know, you know, wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, why isn't there one society that pushed for a communistic economic system along with a religion, along with a, a religious commitment? Never happened. And in fact, it always struck me as astounding that uh, many church people embraced liberation theology. They essentially uh, placed um, communism on a higher level than Christianity, and it, it never, they never realized, somehow it missed that if the people, if, if the system they were advocating actually achieved power, they would be among the very first of its victims. So um, at any rate, all of that in Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, at RabbiDanielLappin.com, where you can also make sure that you receive thought tools, and you can read a whole lot more on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, which by now you really ought to know by heart. Back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, only on the Blaze Radio Network on demand. Hi, everybody. Well, the, uh, the idea that uh, the practice of commerce was a horrible and terrible thing, well, this goes back a long time. But remember that in the modern period, when Adam Smith wrote about economy and free market and how specialization works, he never used the word capitalism, <clears throat> and he did not think that he was introducing anything shockingly new. Uh, he wasn't explaining anything new. Uh, he was just describing the way that things were. In other words, society functioned best when people could trade with one another and exchange goods and services, 
and some people would become particularly good at some things, other people would become very good at other things, and uh, as a result of that, human beings would, would cooperate and interact nicely with one another. And in, in actuality, as uh, I like to point out, there is real value to that. In other words, the idea of specialization had long already been a part of ancient Jewish wisdom. It wasn't until the early 1800s, however, that the principles of specialization that Adam Smith taught actually began to find uh, value. So let me give you an example, if I may. Let's imagine that in Connecticut, Samuel Colt is uh, making revolvers. And the way he does it is he's got six men sitting around a table, and uh, each man, uh, as soon as he finishes one revolver, gets up and gets a piece of stock to shape for the barrel. And when he's got the barrel done, he then uh, uh, does the uh, rotating cylinder. And then when he's done that, he does the, uh, the trigger uh, mechanism and the hammer. And uh, when it's fully assembled, he signs the, the bottom of the butt and he uh, puts it in a basket. And at the end of every day, Samuel Colt picks up all the revolvers, uh, does a quick check on quality control on all of them, and then takes them off to sell. And, uh, and then he pays each man on the basis of how many that man produced. He counts the sign, the signatures on the finished revolvers, and that's how it goes. Now, what happens if um, one guy doesn't show up for work one day? The answer is that the other five ignore it. They carry on. You know, it just means there's a little more beer and a little more bread and cheese for them at lunchtime. Um, and it's, it's irrelevant. One guy didn't show, so he won't get paid. He didn't make any revolvers today. Who cares? But one day, Samuel Colt walks into his revolver factory, and he tells his six men that there's going to be a big change around here. And uh, you may not like it, but nonetheless, I want you to give it your best shot for the next few months. If at the end of that it's, it doesn't work, we'll go back. But here's what I want you to do. Um, man one, you are going to focus on building just barrels. Man number two, you are going to focus on building triggers. Man number three, you're going to do the hammer mechanism. Man number four, you're going to do the, uh, the rotating cylinder. Man number five, you're going to do the handle. Man number six, you're going to assemble them all together, put them in the basket. You don't have to sign them because no one man made them. And uh, each of you are going to make each part to very strict tolerances so that um, any part can fit with any other part to make the gun. Well, the men at first grumble. They don't like it. They, they have a certain sense of pride when they sign their name on the handle of each revolver they make. But uh, little by little, it gets them on board. What really helped to get them on board, though, is that at the end of every day, they all saw that they had put twice as many revolvers in the basket than they used to in the old way. And so uh, all, each man is now getting paid double what he was being paid before, which was fascinating to them. And then as they become more adept, each man became a specialist in his own area. Each man became a specialist in making barrels or making trigger mechanisms, etc. Uh, it came to be that each day they made three times as many guns as they made uh, under the old system. But there was something even more important that happened. And that is that in this system, 
when one of the men doesn't show up for work one morning, what do the others do? They all go running over to his farmhouse to find out if he's okay, if he needs some help, uh, what happened. Turn, you know, it turns out there was a problem with one of his cows. They all help and they, because they want to rush him back to the workshop as quickly as possible because each man is needed. This is the moral beauty of specialization and why ancient Jewish wisdom put specialization on the forefront of the uh, business agenda thousands of years before uh, the West picked up on it. And that was the idea. It causes bonds between people. Uh, someone who's a specialist needs other people. And little by little, as people become specialized, the economy improves, everybody makes more money, and uh, everybody needs one another more. The bonds are strengthened, and that is, of course, fundamental to the whole enterprise, certainly from a divine point of view. So uh, that then is, the, uh, is, is that concept, and along with that is this idea that the, this is the normal way for society to operate. The only other alternative is centralized control, communism, progressivism, call it what you will, but these are the two systems. One is individual freedom, where, uh, where the, uh, the individual gets to own things and conduct his own affairs in freedom and making his own decisions for his own life and bearing the consequences for bad decisions. Yes, that's true as well. That is how the world really works. And uh, the only alternative to that is the other end of the extreme, and that is the, uh, the idea of centralized control. Those are the two ways for human society to function. There isn't anything else. That's it. Uh, well, all right, that's not altogether true. Um, one, can, one can go tribal. One can go uh, chaotic and despotic. Well, there, there are other things. But basically, uh, for a somewhat functioning society, you can either go centralized control or uh, free market. And, um, and for very clear reasons, the natural preference of the world was to go in the direction of centralized control. You see, the, the problem is that if you take the starting point to be that the world is a materialistic place, there's no God, and human beings are nothing but super-sophisticated chimpanzees. In other words, a materialistic perspective. If you take that, then labor becomes the key characteristic of development. And it's not surprising that Karl Marx built his entire enterprise, intellectual enterprise, around what he called, or what is called, uh, the labor theory of value. The labor theory of value says that the value of anything can be determined by how much labor went into it. And the reason that he took this approach was that it was, it was obvious. It's the same reason that human beings find it easier to laze around on the couch watching television than they do to go to a gym or to do some gardening or to go for a run or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's just plain easier. What do I mean by that? What I mean by it is that anybody watching a carpenter uh, framing a house knows what he's doing. Uh, anybody watching a machine operator in a factory, anybody watching a farmer, anybody watching a miner bringing coal up from underground, we, we get what they do. We get it. But, uh, and w by the way, we even get 
uh, why footballers and uh, athletic stars make money, right? Even though there's not a lot of value, at least we can sort of see them doing something that we ourselves can't do. So we, we kind of get that. And movie stars, yeah, we sort of get that as well, although many movie stars themselves don't get why they make the big bucks, which is a result which results in tremendous feelings of self-guilt and the um, result then of becoming very, very far-left uh, progressives because that's what you do when you feel guilty. And uh, the, the idea of Marx's uh, labor theory of value was that things you can see happening are the things that happen. Now, uh, as I pointed out in my thought tool when I, when I first originally taught on this topic, uh, the thought tool about why the world hates the Jews, uh, I pointed out that, um, you know, you could say to Marx, well, um, you know, a doctor a, or a dentist, shall we say, fixes up my painful toothache, takes him half an hour, and he gets paid far more than a coal miner gets paid for half an hour of his labor. So where's this great labor theory of value? And Marx would answer and say, well, it's because the dentist put in a lot of labor earlier on becoming qualified and learning how to fix your tooth, so that's how that works. But um, it doesn't really fully answer things. Um, it, and, and, of course, it's, it's just flagrantly false. Why is it false? Well, because we do not measure value on the basis of how much labor went into something. If a very inefficient carpenter produces a chair working slowly by hand in two weeks' time, and, and exactly the same chair, inseparable, identical, uh, is produced in a few hours by a carpenter with a, uh, with a, with a full workshop of power tools. Um, I don't care which one is which. I'm, I'm, I'm only going to pay a certain amount for a chair, and the fact that one took two weeks will not be reflected in the amount I'm willing to pay. I don't care how long it took him. The value of any object is decided not by the amount of labor that goes into it, but by how much value the marketplace, which means me and you and all the other customers out there, how much value we place on it. And that has to do with how many of there are. If I really need a chair and there's only two chairs available in the shops in my village, the price will be a little higher than it'll be if uh, there's, a, there's a warehouse filled with chairs. So it's supply and demand and, um, and, and the market then decides prices. Any attempt to decree prices uh, on, on the basis of labor or on the basis of any centralized economic planning, uh, always, always been shown to be doomed to complete and utter disaster, never worked. But now imagine, imagine a child, shall we say, a smart child, watching a sales professional do his job. Um, what he does is he, uh, he goes and uh, walks into a, an office, sits down, talks to somebody, and they talk and talk and talk. At the end of it, they exchange, they shake hands, and the sales professional goes to his next call. Talk, 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 shake hands. Um, and then at the end of the day, the sales professional goes back to his uh, supplier, and he says, here are the orders, and he gets paid. And the child watches and doesn't understand. And if we explain to the child and we say, look, we get it. If you see uh, a mechanic fixing a car, you know what he's doing and you know why he gets paid. Um, if you see a, uh, uh, a 
printer printing a book, you know why he's getting paid. But you don't get why this guy is getting paid. So why don't we tell you? He is is serving as a bridge between the supplier of a certain commodity, whether it's furniture or uh, or um, steel or plastic or whatever. It makes no difference, whatever it is, and the person who needs it. So the child then says, if the child's a bright kid, he'll say, look, obviously this person is a parasite. He's not needed. The person who needs the plastic or the steel or whatever it is could just go to the supplier and buy it himself, and he'll obviously pay less for it. Because I saw that this middleman, the sales professional, got paid. Since he got paid, the end user must be paying more. And this way of thinking that the trader, the person engaged in commerce, is essentially just a middleman riding on the backs of honest workers and raising the price of goods, this is what people believed because they simply didn't understand the nature of exchange. They never understood how, uh, how valuable it is shall we say, if, um, if instead of me having to learn how to buy plastic pellets for my plastic-forming factory, I instead can simply greet a sales professional from the plastics industry who will then educate me and bring me the, the samples, let me choose, and then arrange for me to get it. There's value in that. It saves me the time and trouble of running around the countryside talking to all the various plastic suppliers. This is just one example of what the uh, supplier does. A another one, you know, you want to you buy a football or a basketball or a baseball bat or a boxing gloves or whatever you want to do. Yes, it is true. You could probably go along and drive across the country to the place that makes baseball bats and buy one. And you could then drive to a p the, the place where they make boxing gloves and buy that. But you could also go to a sporting goods store, the middleman, and you'll find that uh, he has brought all those things to one location. So you just go to one location, you can compare, you can choose, and do you end up paying um, higher than wholesale? Sure, of course you do. But we all do that, not because we are incapable of going to the supplier, but because it's not worth the time and trouble for us. It's just, it doesn't work. That person, that trader, is doing a real service to us. And so uh, um, trade is something that, that really builds up. Uh, you you want to know the basis of, of Germany's strength? It actually goes back to the middle of the 12th century when um, uh, one of the kings rescued the city of Lübeck on the Baltic Sea and he decided to turn it into a free city. He wanted to rebuild it, and so he took away taxes, and he let merchants come there for free. Well, the city boomed, and it became a major trading port. So a lot of other Baltic um, seaports declared themselves free cities, like Riga in, I think, Latvia, and many other cities, and they finally declared themselves to be the Hanseatic League. Hans, Hansa in, in German means a, uh, uh, a group, a, uh, a club, a, ge a gathering, a, uh, uh, a, a get-together. Um, and so the Hanseatic League was the, the league of all these cities that, that formed a trading group. 
later on, of course, we have a company that started in air travel called Lufthansa. Same word, right? The Air League, because it was originally made up by rolling up a bunch of small little regional airlines that started in the early days of aviation. So um, the power of commerce is enormous. And you can actually find interesting material. There's all kinds of, of old books in which um, you can read about how royalty very often found themselves um, bothered by traders. One queen writes, I walked into a, into a ball, I think she said in, it was either in Holland or Belgium, and uh, she said, looking at the wives of the merchants, I realized that I was no longer the queen, I was just one of about a hundred queens. In other words, she, was <laughs> she wasn't happy that the wives of the traders were dressed as well as she was. Um, the British aristocracy, until relatively recently, I must tell you, and I've got to say it was until the 60s, British aristocracy looked down their noses at what they called merchants. They did. <laughs> the word merchant was a disparaging term. Uh, and this, of course, goes all the way back. Uh, we could go all the way back to um, actually, uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, but... Uh, if we go all the way back to St. Augustine, right, an early church father, St. Augustine wrote in the 5th century uh, very clearly that um, it is, here are his words, it is impossible for one to gain if another does not lose. So since our store, our sporting goods store, gains, then obviously the customers must lose, right? If there's somebody between the farmer and your dining table, right? If there's somebody who gathers up the or buys produce from farmers and brings it into the market in the village, he's doing you a service because now the housewife doesn't have to go to the dairy farmer and the wheat farmer and the radish farmer um, and, the, and the meat place. She just goes to the marketplace and everything she needs is right there. And the people operating the market are the traders. And, uh, and But St. Augustine taught that since those traders are gaining, somebody must be losing. He basically saw any commercial transaction as a win-lose situation. And, um, and this was, was, was not something that he came up with. This was how people thought of it. Um, you know, when, when they riot in American cities, when there are riots, going back to 1968 and all the way up to the present time, I pointed out that what do they do? They destroy all the small stores and the businesses that bring the goods and services into those neighborhoods. The rioters go and destroy those places because those rioters, and this happened in, in uh, 1968, in Chicago, it happened in Los Angeles, in the Rodney King riots, I think that was 92. Um, it happened in New York several times because they say they call these stores exploiting us. They exploit us by, because, right, because they make a living, right? But the fact is that when these stores never reopen, it leaves the neighborhood impoverished. <laughs> it's a bad thing. It's so easy to fall into that trap. Uh, Martin Luther 
right? We're talking now uh, 1500, much later than than St. Augustine. Um, Martin Luther wrote something on the Jews and their lies, right? Martin Luther wasn't a, uh, was not a big fan of Jews, and the reason is exactly what I'm talking about. He actually wrote in his book that we should place axes and shovels and hoes into the hands of Jews and make them earn an honest living through their labor on farms like everybody else. Martin, Lu Martin Luther loathed trade and commerce. Uh, you can go back many years earlier to the ancient Greeks and Plato. Plato saw the merchant as, as a loathsome person. And he said that, that citizens should never engage in something as vulgar and as low as commerce. It's, it's, it's something for non-citizens, for second-class people. Uh, Aristotle, the same thing. You know, anybody engaged in trade can't be involved in politics or the military. It's, it's a low, low, low occupation. Now, while all that's going on, meanwhile, in Jerusalem, trade and commerce are being venerated and elevated. The business professional is regarded as a very, very high-ranking person. He's a key person because the Bible presupposes an entire society in which people are making a living trading with one another. That's how it works. Everybody's doing something for somebody else. And here you've got these two conflicting and contrasting visions for how human society can work and should work. And, uh, and there, from the earliest days all the way up to the Nazis of the middle of the 20th century, all depicted Jews as money-grubbing, despicable people who like trading and commerce because they're making money on the backs of other people. They're raising prices and they're profiteering. You know, if you want to find out if there's a Jew in the area, just drop a penny on the sidewalk and you'll find because the Jews will make a dive for it. You know, these are the kinds of things that, that people joke about and, uh, and people believe. But this all comes from the underlying fundamental conviction that making money is bad and that trading and commerce is not helping people but hurting them. So obviously the people who practice trade and commerce, namely Jews, are obviously horrible people. Now, uh, this is not to say that there are no Jews who earn their living with labor. Of course there are, uh, needless to say. But the idea is that um, over the years, particularly in the medieval period in Europe, while Christianity was teaching people that trade and commerce and money are horrible, bad things, and you shouldn't be engaged in them, Jews had no such moral scruples. Their culture told them, yes, go ahead, supply people's needs. It's helping another child of God. And, um, and the proof that you're helping them is that they're willing to pay. The fact is the housewife wants to come to your stall and buy all the produce she needs instead of traipsing around the countryside going from farm to farm. And she obviously is willing to pay your price because she does. And she doesn't have to because if you are charging more than she's willing to pay, well, somebody else will open up a store next to you and sell the melons and the uh, onions and the carrots at, at a different price. 
That's the beauty of what we call a free market, or, unfortunately, what we've come to think of as capitalism. But uh, it's not just up till Nazism of the 20th century. We are now living in a time where making money is also regarded as bad. There are horrible terms of indoctrination that are used in the culture. Uh, one of them is that uh, people who give charity are said to be giving back to society. And uh, I hate that term because what it suggests is that people who make money are ripping off society because if giving charity is giving back to society, well, you tell me what we were doing to society while we made the money in the first place, right? Horrible, very, very dangerous. And that is exactly how this works. And so one of many reasons why the world hates the Jews is because the world hates commerce, the world hates money, the world hates financial success and uh, disparages it as immoral, and therefore those who are perceived as being best at it, and unarguably Jews are disproportionately good at making money, well, obviously people who engage in a horrible, evil, reprehensible activity are themselves horrible and evil and reprehensible people. It always goes together. In a society that is comfortable with affluence, that is comfortable with the process of creating wealth, Jews are, have always been comfortable. But whenever the society turns left and the society moves in the other direction of a different morality, that is when things invariably go badly for Jews. And so, my friends, that, is the, uh, that gives you a bit of an idea of uh, this aspect of anti-Semitism, and uh, that is as far as we can go. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, the uh, deep biblical story of socialism, progressivism, communism, and the opposite incompatible vision for humanity called the Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. You'll see that on the stall page on my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, there's a whole lot of other stuff to read and to listen to on the website, so head over there. You can also shoot me a message there, which I always appreciate uh, reading, and I try and answer as often as possible as well. That is it. Until next week, my friends, thank you so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.